own man, God has the authority and that he's giving man his last opportunity to turn to him through Jesus. Then in verse 2, we read about the sea of glass and um, we had some uncertainty what it meant and Howard made a great point. And instead of um, looking at it one way, he encouraged me to look at this from a different perspective. And so I went back last week and uh, studied this a little more. And, and instead of looking at that description of heaven in what a lot of commentaries, the commentaries talk about it and they try to put a um, symbolic meaning to each of the, the imageries. And Howard suggested, you know, hey, you look at this in some of the other verses. So I took that perspective and I said, can we look at what we're seeing here in comparison to other verses we have in the Bible that talk about heaven? So I identified a couple of the verses. I'm just going to go through them now because I want to clarify or add to what I taught last week. So there's a couple of verses throughout the Bible that give us glimpses, just little visions of heaven. One of them is Ezekiel, Ezekiel 1.22. And in Ezekiel, it describes the heaven as a vault of sparkling like crystal. Then in Exodus 24.10, we have another um, description of heaven or a partial description. And it talks about under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapsing lazarite, as bright as the blue sky. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with lapsing lazarite. I actually have a piece of it at home. It's a rock, a mineral. It's a brilliant blue with a white streaking through it. And it does. It can look like the sky. It's as pretty as can be. I also read in 1 Corinthians 2.9, and it talks about heaven. Uh, this is not actually a description, but more of just a little bit about heaven. And what it says, No eye have seen, nor ear have heard, nor heart of man imagined what, the, what God is preparing for those who love him. And of course, this is talking about what heaven is going to be like. And this is a great verse, even though there's absolutely no description of it, there's the whole fact that it can't be described, and that just fits so well into why we're having such a hard time understanding what the Scripture means. So I, I thought that was great. And then we have the two Revelation um, Scriptures that talk about, the, uh, talk about heaven, and both of them kind of give similar descriptions of a um, great expanse of crystal-like or glass-like, uh, smooth as sea uh, imagery. And, and I just looked at that and I said, you know, Instead of trying to look at this verse symbolically and that each element has a meaning symbolically, can we just look at this verse as this could simply be John describing what heaven looks like? And of course, um, you know, it's impossible for him to, to do this because there's images up there that his mind just can't comprehend. And I think it'd be the same way for us. I don't think if we saw heaven we could come back to earth and describe it because it's just beyond our understanding. I don't think it's going to be until we're in our glorified body that we can fully understand what heaven is. And then if we do that, we can look at this. This is just a description of heaven. And it doesn't have to mean all these possibilities. And then with that, you know, we can see that it's, it's this great expanse. It's vast, as big as the sea. Uh, it's made at a material that has some kind of quality that's glass-like or crystal-like. Uh, in John's, it has talking about just the color has some red in it or like the sunset. Um, and I think, you know, when I look at that and I read through this and then I compare and I say, you know, we're also going to continue 
this description of heaven in um, verse 5. Maybe that is all this is. This could be just a description, John trying to explain what he saw as heaven and then not have this symbolic meaning. Now, I'm not going to go that far and say this is what it is. Um, Revelation's just too complicated. I, I'm not educated enough to be able to say that's what I believe it is. But I think that being just a description of heaven is consistent with the scriptures we read here, can very well fit. So again, Revelations is so hard to understand and so hard to teach. It could have symbolic meaning and it could be just a simple explanation, uh, description of heaven. So I put that back, you know, let the Holy Spirit guide you and how you're going to interpret it. Um, I think I look at it and I really think maybe it was just a description that that's beyond our comprehension. So I, I wanted to come back and say that. Thank you, Howard, for just leading me in that, that, that direction. Um, it's funny, when you study the Bible, you can get focused on one way and totally miss something. And that's why I love Bible study, because you'll go to church and pastor will talk about something that you just studied yourself, and you'll learn something totally new. You'll go to Sunday school, and you'll be discussing something in a group, and somebody will come up with some comment or statement that just totally shifts your thinking, and you realize, wow, there's so much more here than I understood before. So um, thank you, Howard, for that, and I encourage you guys, take what we learned tonight, go home and study it for yourself. I'd love you to come back and tell me something and help me learn and grow. We ended last week's study in verse four, 3 and 4, where we talked about the tribulation saints and that they were praising God and singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. We're going to continue our study or pick up right from there with verse 5. And verse 5, that's Revelation 15, verse 5. After this I looked and saw in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. So in Exodus 25, 8 and 9, we learn that the tabernacle that Moses was told to build was after the pattern of something he saw in heaven. And I'll just read that um, scripture for you, Exodus 25, 8 and 9. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make the tabernacle as it, and its furnished exactly like the pattern I will show you. So from that, we know that the tabernacle that Moses built on earth and then eventually becomes the temple that um, Solomon built, David support, that was a copy of the temple in heaven, the place where God dwells in heaven. And they were just earthly representations of that. So here we're talking about that actual temple that they saw, the temple in heaven where God dwells. And uh, again, whenever we talk about the temple, we need to remember, we need to go back and refresh our mind that when we're talking about the temple, we're talking about the Jewish people. The Jewish nation, they're the only people who had a temple. Um, the tabernacle, the temple are interchangeable for most parts in especially the discussion that we're talking tonight. Uh, it's mentioned 15 times in Revelation, and all 15 times comes after chapter 4. Now, if you remember, uh, chapters 1 through 4 are dealing with the church. It goes through the church. It talks about the church. It's the letters to the church. At chapter 4, we see the church raptured. The rest of Revelation now deals with the temple, the tabernacle. No more do we see the church mentioned in Revelation. Now it's all shifted. And I think it's important because this shows us that 
Israel, God's chosen people, still has a key role to play in God's work on earth. Now, right now, it's the church age. The church is responsible for the witness of Jesus Christ, for sharing the gospel with leading people to Christ. When the church is raptured, that Jewish nation then becomes his primary uh, means. And, and there's a special shift there. There's a, that, that's significance because here we have the rest of Revelation is dealing with that, is talking about um, the Jewish nation and their influence in the world and then, of course, the world. We also see in um, verse 5 that there's some unique terminology here, uh, specifically when it's talking about the tabernacle of the covenant law. That's talking about where the law was kept. That's the holy of holies in the tabernacle. And just on a side note, um, I always thought this was fascinating, so I'm going to share it with you as a bonus. But when you think about God sent, set up the tabernacle, he gave the covenant law, the covenant law was stored in the Ark of the Covenant. What sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. In the Jewish traditions of, of the sacrifice, of preparation, of the once a year where the high priest would come into the Holy of Holies, they sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. And when you look at this imagery, and it just it's so beautiful how God puts this together, because when God met with man in the Old Testament, he looked through that blood sacrifice on the mercy seat to see the Ten Commandments, the covenant law, means he was looking through the blood of the sacrifice that forgave the sins to meet with man. And in the same way, he does that with a Christian. So we have the blood of Jesus sacrifice over us, cleansing us from our sins. When, Jesus, when God looks at us, he looks at us through the blood of Jesus. And that imagery just follows from the Old Testament right into the New Testament. I just, I think it's a beautiful picture of how God sees us. He sees us through that blood, through that sacrificial blood, through the forgiveness, so that we can have that fellowship with God. I just love that imagery and, and see how that works through, through the Old Testament. But more important, what we're seeing here, the significance that God's testimony is now in heaven. We read that, that verse, and it talks about he's in the temple, and the testimony of his covenant law is in that temple with him. And I believe this is telling us, this is teaching us that the, the Ten Commandments, the Ark of the Covenant, is now in heaven with God. And I know there's talk and there's debate. There's people who think it's on earth, where to go. I think God took it up to heaven, and it's up there with him. Uh, that's my opinion on it, but um, again, that's, that's always a thing of, Many different researchers, many different theologians have different opinions. I just, why, why would we need it anymore? We're not under the covenant law. We're now under grace. Uh, we also see that the tabernacle is open. And again, there's, there's a significance in there. If you remember, you go back again to the Old Testament. Uh, the, the, the high priest, once a year, would go through the sacrifice would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat and be in the, the Holy of Holies. This is a once-a-year event. One time, one man got to go into the Holy of Holies. At Jesus' death, the curtain that separated the, the holy place from the Holy of Holies was ripped down the middle from top to bottom. And that was significant in that showing man now has access to God. Once that opening, once that curtain was ripped, God, through Jesus, or Jesus, through the blood of Jesus, 
we had access to God, direct access to God. And I think we're seeing some of that imagery here that in heaven, the temple is open and we have access to God. Uh, but I want to take note of when are we told that we have access to God. And again, when you look at the scripture, when you look at the, the wording, it's only after we've praised and worshiped God. After the, the, the songs of praise, do we know that the temple is open? Now, is it significant that the temple opens because of the praises? I can't say that, but I think it does. I think there, there, there is this level under here that the temple is opened as a result of our praises. Um, again, just my, my interpretations of Revelation, of the scripture. Uh, but I think it, it fits in scripture. It follows what we see in other scripture. Uh, but there's also one thing we also need to notice is that the, there is, although we will have, although the saints will have access to God in heaven at the temple, uh, there's one more thing that needs to take place before that happens. And uh, we'll read that in verse 6. Out of the temple came seven angels with seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chest. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels golden bowls filled with the wrath of Christ, who lives forever and ever. So here we're seeing the temples open, but first we have to have God's wrath. Before we can enter that temple, God's wrath needs to be poured out. Now, this is, again, just studying this. Um, I, I, I saw something this time that I studied that I've never seen before. Uh, so we see the seven angels. They're sent by God. They're coming out of God's presence, the temple. So they're coming directly from God. They're God's servants. They're doing God's work. God's sending them out directly. Uh, there's seven of them. And again, many people look at seven. Seven's a significant number. Um, many people think of seven as the number of perfection. But when you study the Bible, it's not really the number of perfection, it's the number of completeness. And there is a difference, there's a significant difference between something being perfect and something being complete. In completeness, we have a finished, even whatever the status is. In perfection, it has to be perfect. And I think we need to sometimes remember seven is complete, not perfect. And, and just there's a significance as we study the Bible and we use those numerical meanings in that. Um, then there's also, they're dressed in white linens with a gold sash. And I think that's showing their, their white linens, their purity, their royalty, they're coming from God himself. They, they stay in the presence of God. Uh, and it's a reminder that God's judgment is always complete, it's always pure, it's always righteous. But then I noticed something when I read this. When you read it, it says the seven angels are given the bowls of God's judgment uh, by one of the four living creatures. Now, we had the four living creatures. They go back to Revelation 4, where we learned about the four living creatures, and they have significant roles. But when you look at this, you realize that the angels come out of the temple with the plagues, but are giving the bowls of the wrath of God. And I looked at that and I said, are there two different things going on there? They have plagues and they have wrath. They come out of the temple with the plagues, but they're given the bowls of wrath. And, and I, never, I never realized that, that wording. 
And you know, I did a lot of research, tried to find a lot of commentary on this, and there was really nothing that I could find that distinguishes, is this two different things here? They kind of just look, yeah, they come out of the, bolt, the, the, the temple, they have the plagues and the wrath of God, and it's all just merged together, and it goes on, carries on as one thing. But when you read it, it's really, the scripture talks about it as they come out with the bowls of wrath, I mean, the bowls of plagues, I mean, the, they come out with the plagues and are given the bowls of wrath. And I'm looking at them, the more I study this, the more I look at this and I say, you know, there's two things here, there's two levels. They, they've got the, 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 the um, plagues, but then they're given the wrath to pour out. And uh, as, I, as I studied, as I looked, as I thought this through, I'm thinking, how does this relate to other scriptures about the plagues? Um, you know, we see plagues throughout the Bible, um, some of them to God's people, the Jewish people's enemy, but most of them, more of them, when we actually study the Bible, are actually, the plagues are poured out or, or given to the Jewish nation. We see more scripture that talks about how the plague hit the Jewish people than we do about the plagues hitting other nations. They are there. We have the 10 plagues of Egypt. We have other plagues that happen. But when you really study it out, more of the scripture talks about the plagues that hit the people of Egypt. And it was usually the same pattern. The, the people, um, excuse me, the, the people of Israel. It's the same pattern. You see God's people falling away from God sinning, doing something they were told not to. God sends a plague to chastise them. They turn back to God. And we see this over and over again. Just a few examples. We have Exodus 30, where the plague broke out because of the golden calf. Numbers 11, it talks about the Israelites that complained to Moses because they didn't have meat to eat. So God gave them the quail, and then a plague broke out. Number 16, the assembly gathered and opposed Moses and Aaron. God sent a plague, and they turned back to God and, and accepted Moses as God's spokesman. Uh, and then even later in times, we got 2 Samuel 24, where David goes to take a census of Israel. He was told not to. He took it anyway. A plague falls out. He repents and turns back to God. And I think start looking at that and say, well, how does the plagues and judgment and wrath all fit together. And as I study this out, I'm thinking, you know, when we see these plagues, there's always a aspect of judgment, and there's always an aspect of wrath. The, the, the wrath, the punishment for doing wrong, and then the judgment to turn them back to God. And I think that might be the same thing we're seeing here. And of course, we've studied earlier in the lesson about how these, these plagues throughout Revelation, the, the trumpet, the um, uh, um, seals, now the bowls, they're all there to also turn people, turn man back to God. They're not just there to punish, but there's also this level to turn man, man back to God. God always re re desires for, him, for man to turn back to him. God always desires to reestablish that relationship and I think in these plagues that we're going to see, uh, even though they're, they're great, they're, they're devastating, um, they basically destroy the world, they're not only to punish man for their sins, which we see, we definitely see aspects of that, but they're also to turn man back to God.
So the seven bowls are filled with the wrath, and uh, the punishment gets worse as, as the um, plagues go on. Uh, but I think I, I look at this and I just say, you know, that, that fits right into how we see God working. Um, it's not just about the punishment. It's not this vengeance. It's not this unrighteous condemnation of man for, for turning from him, which there is some of that in there. But it's also this grace of turn back to me, turn, to, turn back to your creator. And I think that's important to see in this. Uh, moving on to verse 7, it talks about the bowls. Some translations talk about the vial, and they call it a vial. I think a bowl is a better description. Um, the bowls that they're talking about, just, just to, again, this imagery you see, they were flat, wide mouth bowls, regularly, regularly used in temple worship. So the people all knew what it was. And it, it's this image of this wide mouth, flat bowl that can easily be poured out. More like a saucer type, but a big, big bowl. Not this little vial with a small mouth that's going to just trickle out a little at a time. And I think that's important because that imagery is when these bowls of wrath, when these judgments are poured on the earth, it's not going to be this little, it's going to come in a tidal wave. It's just going to come and overwhelm well, the earth. And, and that's significant in understanding why they're called bowls and what it really means. It, it, it's showing this. Uh, overwhelming pouring out of, of, of the punishment, of the, the wrath. Uh, and just, again, it's not a vengeful, but it's a righteous. It's what they deserve. Uh, you know, it, we talked last week that when they took the mark of the beast, they knew what they were doing. They knowingly took the mark of the beast, knowingly turning their back on God, uh, knowingly rejecting Jesus as their savior. And so when the bowls are poured out and this wrath is poured on them, there's not going to be a question as to why it happened. Continuing with verse 8, we read, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the, severe, the seven plagues of the seven angels were complete. Now again, the temple in heaven, this is where God's dwelling, and is filled with smoke. And smoke in the tabernacle, again, is not a new image for us because when we go back to the Old Testament, we read that when the tabernacle was set up and God would come down to meet with Moses, smoke filled the tabernacle, smoke filled the area. Moses would meet with God. Moses didn't enter the tabernacle. He stood outside before the tabernacle. He stood before the Lord on the outside. And the smoke uh, we often call it, we often say it's the veil covering the Shekinah glory of God. So God is so great. His glory is beyond our comprehension, beyond, beyond the fact we can't see it and live. That's how great God is. So he protects us by covering that glory with a cloud, with a shroud, with a, a um, uh, covering of smoke to protect us. And we see that same thing coming here in, in um, Revelation. Now, just to, to follow that, we have Exodus 40, 34, and 35, and it just talks about that. When the cloud covered the tent of meetings and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, 
Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So that just shows we got that same thing going on here up in heaven. Uh, but why, why do we have it up in heaven? So um, God's in the temple. He's in the midst of his final judgment. Um, he's he's uh, about to pour out these bowls and the clouds are covering. So I, I read a number, a number of commentaries on that and this can be interpreted a couple different ways. There's three main um, rules, schools of thought. One is talking about that the judgments are so terrible that God doesn't want to see his saints see him while he's judging. Another line of thought is that uh, no man can see God at this time because he's weeping and um, doesn't want his saints to see him as he, he weeps for unrepented man. And then another thought saying that, that this is declaring that God's judgment is going to take place, that no one can enter the temple and change God's mind. Uh, I'm not real fond of the third because I don't think God changes his mind, um, but that's kind of the train. I think it could easily be both the first and the second where God's closing out the saints. He, he might be weeping for man. Uh, we, know, you know, we know Jesus wept for the unrepented man, um, and I think God could be doing the same. He could be weeping for unrepented man. It could be just he doesn't want his people to see the wrath that they're going to get. Um, again, you know, you have to just take this as face value. What does the Bible say? How do you interpret? How does the Holy Spirit lead you? Uh, I think it can easily be the first two of God's judgment and God's, God's weeping. Um, just, you know, I, like I said, it's so hard to study Revelation in that. Uh, I also want to just talk a little bit about the bold judgments, and chapter 16 is going to go into detail. I don't know if we're going to get into 16 now. I was trying to leave it for pastor, but we might have time to start it. Um, so remember last week I talked about this is chapter 16 and chapter 15 are kind of parallel in that they're the same things happening. One is from the heavenly perspective and one is from the earthly perspective. But one of the things we want to keep in mind is that when these judgments are poured out, uh, when we see what, I mean, some of these judgments, many theologians have tried to relate it back and say, oh, you know, this is from that or this is from that. Um, I've heard, you know, stories, theories, whatever you want to call it, that, you know, the festering sores that we're going to see in the first bowl judgment is because the lithium battery from the mark of the beast has exploded. I mean, you know, you can get into that kind of, I, I don't think it's necessary. I mean, God's going to put a plague. It's going to be a put a plague. But I've got to see that with all these judgments. Um, these judgments, the sea is not going to change. The world's not going to warm up, things like that, because of man's influence. This isn't a global warming event. This isn't because man has used fossil fuel, fuels and we're heating up the, the environment and, and a plague's going to happen that's going to cause the heat. You know, this isn't going to be a nuclear disaster because somebody pushes the button and we have a global nuclear war. This is going to come from God. These judgments are going to be from God. It's not going to be a man's influence. Man's not going to cause this. Now, can I say that God's not going to use a, a, a nuclear event in this? I can't say that. But it's not going to be because man pushed the button. It's not going to be because somebody made a mistake. It's not going to be something that we cause. 
these plagues are going to come from God, directly from God, to punish man, to show man God is in control of his creation, and to show man that the only salvation is through Jesus Christ. So, you know, we look at this and we say, you know, why? Why, why is God giving us um, this information? You know, uh, why, why do we study Revelation? Why do we see it? And, you know, I, I just, again, reading through the commentary, this isn't my own words. Um, it's taken from a couple different pieces. But I just think this is a perfect, um, in, a, in, in, a, in, a, in a sentence, what, why we study Revelation and, you know, it's, why do you think God gave us this glimpse of the future? We're not going to be here. Hopefully, it makes us all more passionate witnesses for Christ when we consider how terrible it would be for those who don't know Jesus. Maybe we'll, we will be motivated to try harder. And I just think that's a, a great, you know, it is. When, you, when we study, as we study into Revelation 16, I believe I'm going to have some time to get into it. I don't know how far. And we hear how terrible this is going to be. Yes. Well, no, like I said, they, there's the, reading commentaries, there's basically the, the three three. I get three jests from it. I get three, three different... Um, I'm sorry. So our question is, why will no one be able to enter the temple during this time of wrath? So when I study, basically most of the commentaries fall under three categories. The first category is saying that the judgments are so terrible that God doesn't want his saints to see. Okay, that's what you... Okay, gotcha. Yeah, the second one... Do I need to, we're good on that. The second one was because he's weeping and he doesn't want the saints to see him weep. Um, you know, again, we saw God and his glory in the temple would cover that glory, would not allow Moses in. And I think it's the same thing. There's some reason he doesn't want us to be in the temple. The temple's open. We have that access. But for that moment in time, while these judgments are going, going on, we're shroud away we're, we're kept out of temple we're kept out of seeing what's going on in the temple because of God's glory and you know it's also just you know God's glory I mean God is pouring out his wrath in his wrath is is his glory I mean it's it's who he is he's creator of the universe you know he made everything it all belongs to him he has the right to do whatever he wants and yet we deny him you know hum, humanity denies him that honor and will point to every other direction, and he sent his son, and yet they reject his son. And, you know, now his glory is coming out, his, his wrath is coming out, and it's covered. Again, I think it can be both. I think, I, I, I believe he could be weeping for us, and I believe it could be just because of his wrath is now being poured out that we're, the, the temple is covered in smoke to protect us from seeing that. Well, I think that kind of goes in into that third 
category where no one can change God's mind. I don't see God as needing to change his mind, but yes, I think I think we we do see where where God had said something, and we see it with Abraham and and Sodom and Gomorrah. We see it with Moses twice, where he um, appeals to God to not destroy the Israelites. You know, Moses, the, the Israelites turned from God. They were so bad, God was going to destroy them all and start over again with Moses. And Moses appealed to God not to. So, you know, we, we have that in Scripture so we can say, you know, there, Jesus, being our advocate, can stand in our place and hold back the judgment. But then we also see that this judgment, you know, God, we, Jesus says, no man knows except for the Father. So, I think I think you know it could have levels of that where where he's also shutting out Jesus. I mean, if in in human terms, I don't know how to say this in spiritual terms, human terms that he's shutting shutting the door so no one can disrupt, hinder, alter this judgment. Any other questions before we move on to sixteen? I want to apologize. I let you guys out too early last night or last week because I was messed up on the time. I thought we had to finish by 7.30. I'm always looking this way. I'm never looking at the clock, so I don't know when Pastor finishes. <laughs> Except for the child care. <laughs> um, but I, I, yeah, so we can start into chapter 16. I don't think I'm going to get very far, and I'm sure Pastor will probably just start over again because it's hard to start midterm. But I do have a few minutes left, so I will just um, enter in. So, so now we're turning our vision of these same bold judgments from the heavenly perspective to the earthly perspective. And so starting off with Revelation 16:1, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath to earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had not had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. So here we see that first bold judgment. We see God gave, God gave them the, the, the um, uh, sorry, the words just disappear on me. He gave them the, the plague. The bowl gets given to him with the wrath of God outside the temple. The moment God tells him to pour out that bowl. The angel pours out that bowl. And the command is given from the temple, so we know that's God himself saying, pour out the judgment. Um, It's also, uh, just as soon as that command's given, the bowl is poured out. And and I just think back, that gives us a different perspective. When we read the Lord's Prayer, and it talks about your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's a glimpse of what God's will looks like in heaven. He tells that angel to pour out that bowl, and that angel's pouring out that bowl. You know, do we, do we look, do we seek that on earth when, when we pray that prayer? Do we really mean that we want that kind of obedience? The moment God tells us to do something, we're doing it. And I think that puts, a, puts that, the Lord's Prayer and that into perspective for us, that when we're praying for him that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are asking for that obedience, that immediate obedience that his angels have up in heaven. Because in heaven, when he commands it, it's done. 
There's no questions. There's no asking. There's no debates. There's no stum uh, you know, stumbling around or dragging our defeat. It's done immediately. And I think that's just a great perspective for us to have when we consider in our lives, are we that obedient to God? Um, so we get the, the talking about the plague. So we had the, the we had the, the, the seal plagues, we had the trumpet plagues. There's actually another set of plagues in the, the um, in Revelation, but no one talks about them ever. Anybody have any ideas? Trivia question, 10 points. The, the, so we have the seals, the seal judgments. We have the trumpet judgments. We have another set of judgments. No one ever talks about them. Well, the bold judgments, we're talking about those. There's a fourth one in the middle there. The thunder judgments. We don't know what they are. Because the Bible says, seal them up. Don't. I, my own personal theory, I think if we knew the, the thunder judgments, we might have more information, be able to pinpoint just a theory. But yeah, there, there's, but when you look at the judgments, each set of judgment becomes a little worse, a little more devastating. Now we have the bowls, and with the bowls, the devastation is complete. It's no longer taking out a third of the uh, sea or the third of the rivers. Now it's complete devastation. And that just shows that at the end of these bowl judgments, not only are the judgments devastating to the different parts of the world, they devastate the world. At the end of this, and we saw that from the first part of chapter 15, is that when these bold judgments are poured out, when the last bold judgment is, is complete, the world is complete. The end of the earth is here, and now God's at the point where he's going to remake the new heaven and the new earth. This finishes man on earth as a sinful, sinful man on earth. So the first bold judgment, back to um, verse 2, And the first angel poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped the image. So these sores, uh, they don't heal. They're not healing sores. It's not something that everybody got a sore and it went away. It's not like COVID where you get the mask and vaccine that doesn't work, and then you, know, you heal from it and you go on. These are festering sores that just keep, Festering. They're, they're, they're pussy, they're smelly, they're disgusting uh, sores that the people get and they don't go away. But it's only the people who had the mark, only the people who worship the beast. And this kind of brings us back. There's some parallels that we see with these, these um, plagues and the plagues of Egypt, where some of the plagues of Egypt, the Israelites were protected from them. They didn't have to deal with and we see a lot of that parallelism here where those who God, who, who rejected the beast, who accepted Christ, who um, didn't take the mark, are protected from some of these. Just catching my notes. I think that's all for the, uh, I can go on to the second bowl judgment in verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and turned into blood like that of a dead man. And everything living in the sea died. Now the second bowl judgment is the sea becoming like blood. And this, is, this, is, this was a hard passage to translate 
because when you translate this passage, especially in compared with the next passage, this passage, it doesn't, if you really look at it in the original Greek, it says the sea became blood like that of a dead man. And you, 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 know, you can translate it as the sea became blood or the sea became like blood of a dead man. So I'm not, I can't tell you, I can't say if the sea actually becomes blood or it becomes like blood. But the significance is that uh, everything in it died. And, and that's, that's really the key. It, it, I think it's also, when you look at that, like blood, I think that means there's also going to be like blood of a dead man that's congealing, that's getting thick. That, that's, you know, so we're going to see the oceans turn. We're going to see all live, living animals in the oceans die. We're going to see a significant, you know, part of the beast's reign, part of the beast's world-dominant power is a world financial system. Here's the first bold judgment, and it's going to kill everything off in the oceans. There's going to be a significant loss of income, of nations that, re- that, that survive on the, the, the fish from the sea as their food. Uh, commerce through the oceans. You know, boats are not going to be able to sail across the oceans with this thick, glomulate, blood-like substance in the oceans. And I think it's just going to devastate the food that comes from the sea, the trading, the, the shipping, the transportation that comes over the sea. And I think, so in this plague, there's an aspect of it that's also devastating the beast's financial um, world, world financial uh, conglomerate that he set up. I think, I don't know, we're, we're a few minutes early, but I think, I think we're going to stop there because if I go further, I'll get into the next judgment, and that's quite a bit. Um, I hope you enjoyed. Any questions, feel free to ask. I think the important thing is to remember, you know, we're not given this glimpse for our benefit so we can go home and know. I think we're given this glimpse to realize how important it is to know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, to have that relationship with him, and to share that with as many people as many people as possible. Any questions about that? Any questions you, you want to know more? Feel free to talk. Go ahead, Cliff. I want to back up just a little bit because uh, smoke filled and closed tabernacle. The, the, the uh, fact that Jesus is a God would be weeping. I don't think he would be um, embarrassed for us to see him. So Jesus weeping, he's weeping for the souls that didn't um, elect to. That makes sense. I, I can I can agree with that. Like I said, it, it's how do you interpret it? How do you figure it out? Um, it doesn't. The Bible doesn't tell us that the smoke is there for this reason or that. It tells us in the Old Testament that when His Shekinah glory was being veiled by smoke, so that it protected Moses from from 
seeing God in his glory and dying. Uh, It's not going to protect us from dying because those who are up in heaven have already died. Um, Yeah, it's, that makes sense. I, I can, you know, is he, is he doing it to protect us or is he doing it? I think if it's anything, it's to protect us, not for himself. Other questions? Randy? Yeah. I don't think we can contradict. I think this is all good because that's the whole thing about studying God's word and studying revelation. It's trying to figure out what do we learn from this? How do we apply this? You know, it's, it's, there's not a lot in revelation that I can apply to my life because like I said earlier, I'm not planning on being here. Um, but at the same time, Each one of these things, as we examine them, as we explore them, as we try to make sense out of them, as we try to get meaning from it, they are are all aspects of God's character that we can learn who God is in a a greater way. Like I said, I I struggled because I can't say any one of those, the the three, three camps that they talked about why there's smoke and why the temple was closed I can't tell you why. Um, they both, yeah, there's... When he said, and to me, you know, the pastor calls it like giving you a nugget. Yeah. I'm a kid in Well, like I said, Howard's nugget last 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 week got me going for, for a long time trying to study that. And I think the more I look at it, the more I say, I think, I think what I figured out and studied on my own made more sense than the commentaries. Am I right? I'm not going to go that far. I, I, I'm not going to say I'm, I know it all. But, you know, that's, that's the glory of studying God's word. You learn, you grow, you figure it out. Another comment here? 